having a good time, but it's enough of that, you had to get back to your seat. So, the day that I had ended much differently than it had started. That morning, I was filled with overwhelming anticipation and excitement, and by that night, I was filled with despair and uncontrollable tears. You may be wondering what happened. That was the day that my high school sweetheart came home for the weekend from her college campus eight hours away. The long-distance relationship was so hard on my little 19-year-old self. And it was going to be so good to be together. When I saw her, I immediately knew something was wrong. And she informed me that she was seeing someone else. And I didn't know how to deal with what had happened. I cried, and I yelled, I called friends, I worked, I played sports, uh, but nothing really helped me deal with that pain that I was feeling, especially when she would call me up because she missed my friendship. And I'm like, why are you doing this to me? This conversations never went well, and that a po- at that point, a friend counseled me to put the conversations that I wanted to have with her into a journal. And uh, those journal entries started as letters to her, explaining how her actions had affected me. And um, my plan was that at some point I would be able to give this book to her. She would be able to read what I was feeling. She would see the air of her ways and come back to me. <laughs> you know, I, she had done all these bad things, but I was such an amazing guy that I had written about how I was going to forgive her. And, um, yeah, but as the weeks went on, and they turned to months, and the months went on, I realized that that wasn't going to happen. And she wasn't coming back. She never did. And slowly, I actually felt like I was losing everything that I cared about. Yeah, I was losing these relationships. I was losing jobs. I was losing my sense of security. I was losing the career choices that I I had chosen. And um, I was even losing the ability to feel alive. Dramatic effect. (laughs) Yeah. And um, finally, I decided that I would rather be dead than feel dead. So as I couldn't put this plan into action, I stood at the edge of this cliff, ready to throw it all away. And uh, a friend reached out and prevented me from killing myself. But I was done. I was spent. I had nothing left. All except for this book, this journal. And in this journal, I, I had all my hurt and pain, all my lost hopes and all my dreams that never came to be all my failed attempts, and all my emotional baggage. Everything had gone wrong. And it was God's doing. So you can argue that logic if you want. You can tell me that God would never allow me to be hurt like that. 
And you may want to defend God, but it doesn't matter. I know what happened. In fact, I actually have a written record of the whole thing right here. This happens. There are times in life, uh, as good as they may look to us, that they're getting in the way of our relationship with God, and it cause, causes Him to move into drastic action, and it's, it's, it's as if God is breaking up with us. That's nothing new. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then He plunked a couple people right in paradise He had built and gave them a choice. The choice was symbolized simply in a piece of fruit. Do whatever you want, God says. Just don't eat from that one tree or you're going to die. And we know what choice they made, right? Because we'd make the same ones. They wanted to carve their own trail. Even though God had clearly laid out the danger, they deliberately chose to do things their way. And in a sense, they were saying, we know more about our lives than the one who made us. They called for drastic action. God confronted them and basically broke up with them. He kicked them out of paradise, cursed the relationship as well as the very ground they walked on. He's perfect, and he would cease to be perfect, allowing imperfection in his presence. He had to separate from us. He could have destroyed them. He could have started all over, but he wasn't surprised by what had happened. He knew what was going to happen. He had planned for it. He had created us with the will to choose. He didn't want robots that had no ability to love him. He wanted, he wanted real love. And true love can only be achieved with choice. And ever since that time, people have been in a struggle with God. In fact, years later, God renamed one guy he was working with Israel. Israel means one who wrestles with God. And as if we look through the pages of history and even into the modern context, we can see that was really appropriate name for that people group, right? It's true <clears throat> that when Israel was, uh, was saved by God out of slavery in Egypt, and then as soon as they were saved in these miraculous ways, they grumbled about their freedom, they grumbled about everything, and they just wanted to go back into slavery. And it was true when God brought them to the edge of the land he had promised to their ancestors that would be theirs. That he had done mighty things for them so they could see. But when they got to the edge of the land, they were too scared because the people there were too big. The enemies were too strong. And they instead chose to rebel against him. It was true when the people stopped following God and got mixed up in all sorts of weird stuff. Bad crowds. Things turned sour. They would cry for God to help for help. And God would send an amazing dynamic leader to save them. But then explain that their actions have consequences. Not to do it again. And they did it again. Eventually, he said he would have to cut them off and allow them to follow their hearts, even if that meant letting them walk off a cliff. And it was true when the people rejected God and said wanted to follow a king. These kings got direction from God, but instead, most times, that just escalated the amount of trouble that they could get in as a king. Now they had the look of success, but in reality, they were in debt with the wrong people. And then these people and these other nations were waiting to use that debt to weaken, exploit, 
and control Israel. In selling their souls to the surrounding nations, they couldn't see God at all. This kind of sounds familiar to some other situations, doesn't it? This is the case. This wrestling match is the case when Hosea began writing a journal of his own. If you look at the first line of the book of Hosea, and if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to bring it because I was too lazy to do a PowerPoint presentation. If you look at the very first line of the book of Hosea, you'll see it as a whole list of kings that were in power while he was writing. And what it says to me is this isn't about a single event, but this is a journal that spanned his life. This is a book that contained his hurts and his pains of being rejected by the woman he loved and seeing her deliberately and actively go after other guys. Brad walked us kind of through the sordid details of all this last week. Uh, Hosea's wife, Gomer, had commitment issues and ran off with other men, leaving her husband to raise the children that may not have even been his. I picture Hosea sitting down to write all these things out that he was thinking and feeling. In the midst of those words he was writing, something miraculous happened. God showed him that he shared his heart, the heart of a spouse who's been cheated on, rejected, and taken advantage of. The anger and the hurt and the pain of the years of unfaithfulness were all real and all legitimate. And yet the story wasn't over. Now, when I have talked with anybody about the concept of this book, God says, go and marry a prostitute. If I, if I believe that, they ask me if I believe that story is true or if it's just some sort of symbolic metaphor. Would God actually ask someone to do this? Now, if you're asking that question because you care about biblical interpretation and the theory of redaction criticism for the purpose of constructing a biblical commentary for scholars to debate, then maybe you should ask Keith. <laughs> that sounds like a Keith question. If, however, you're asking that question because it makes you uncomfortable with the type of God that you're following and what he might ask you to do and the type of relationship advice that you're going to get from the Bible, I can address that. Here's what I have to say. This is Hosea's story. It's not yours. I am in no way advocating that you use Hosea's life story as a means in which to justify entering into or staying in a potentially wrong, abusive relationship. Uh, we actually know very little of the details surrounding Hosea's life and calling. The information we have uh, forms an emotional context for the book. We know what is being written, um, but not why it happened in this way. And I want to urge you that if you ever, ever, ever feel like God is calling you to do something radical, that you don't just use the book of Hosea to justify your answer. That's why we study like, books like this together. It's why we have a community of people that meet together like this, to talk about life and not just gather for lectures or sermons that we could have just listened to online. That's why we pray and fast and seek the advice of trusted mentors and mature believers in God. That's why we learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
so we can tell the difference between God's voice and the weird dreams we have from eating too many Doritos before we go to bed. That doesn't mean that he won't ask you to do something crazy. I mean, after all, he's crazy enough to send me to Canada, even though I said I would follow, follow him anywhere but. <laughs> I think that the circumstances of this book are so unique to Hosea that it actually pushes me to believe that the story must be real. The imagery is so shocking and filled with such intense emotion I can only imagine it can be written by someone that has had this profound personal experience with the subject matter. I think that it is a, it's further highlighted by the portion of the book that we're going to be looking at today. It's sandwiched right in between chapters 1 and 3. That's what Brad talked about last week, and he avoided this because he likes to save all the really hard passages for guest speakers. So let's get started already. Okay, so chapter 2 of Hosea. Starting in verse 2, it says, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. She's not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. I just have to stop a second and say Hosea is an extremely awkward book to read from. (laughs) His content is shockingly sexual and not necessarily family-friendly. And... um, You might be offended. If you are, I ask you to take it up with the author. And um, you might might be offended, and I'm sorry, um, but I just have to read exactly what's here. Um, If you think it's offensive in our culture, where sexual imagery is actually used on a very consistent daily basis, think about how much more scandalous it would be at the time it was written. To link our relationship with God as sexual tension is not the most natural imagery. Okay? Especially for a heterosexual guy like me. But if we were to actually take this passage literally, it would mean that I have to ask my mom about the unfaithfulness between her breasts. I talk to my mom about many things, but not that. <laughs> Never. <laughs> and as awkward as it is, I actually appreciate that the Bible is an R-rated book. Because it doesn't sugarcoat life, it deals with the really dark and dirty parts of existence. Uh, A legitimate question to ask is why is this story here at all? Why do we even look at it? Now, as thinking about my own life, and as I was picking up the broken pieces, I began to reread through my journal, and I made an interesting discovery. Overlaid over my familiar words of emotional instability and heart wrenching events, I saw something new, a new perspective places where God was shining through, where previously I hadn't seen him. I started to look deeper, devouring my own journal, looking for a glimpse and a piece of understanding of him. I thought were records of my own failings were simultaneously a record of God redeeming my life. I find it encouraging that God can use the hurts and the pains and the sufferings of our life to help encourage other people. God is using Hosea's life story here as well. He's saying, hey, your life might not seem very great right now, but I'm going to use your life to show an entire nation of people my broken heart. And I'm going to use your pain to encourage people throughout history 
on how to rebuild a relationship with their creator. God can use the crap in our life, but we have to be willing to share it with others, and that's not easy. Anyway, let's keep going. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. She's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked, make her as bare as the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in great disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my food, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. So we're only a few verses in and we have a whole set of things that many critics inside and outside the church find uncomfortable and confusing and offensive. It turns many people off from cracking open the Old Testament at all or trusting biblical theologians on modern social issues. If you're one of those people, I'm glad that you're here putting in the effort to see God today. And you don't have to believe everything that I'm saying. But at least you're here. Just be open-minded with me for a few minutes and maybe we'll be surprised. No, it's not about everything that I've learned. It's about how we can figure out where is God in this together. So let's go over some of these uncomfortable things. The first one, that rebuke your mother, rebuke her. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. We already covered the uncomfortable sexual language, but let's also address the accusational tone. Like It can seem harsh the way God talks to people. And we need to remember here that we're dealing with the case of facts and not speculation. The wife has been and is currently involved with other guys. We can get hung up on that word rebuke. But as one translation put it, they use the word plead. In a sense, a husband is sending a message through the kids saying, Mom, Dad really wants to make things right, but you have to stop this. It sucks the kids are caught in the middle of all of it, but that, the function happens, and it happens to the whole family. As a youth worker, I know that full well. Even in the healthiest situations of separation, it affects kids. We may not like it. We may not be comfortable with it. But this is Hosea's story, right? And overlaying that situation, we start to see God is talking to the nation of Israel. He's pleading with the people of the land, not just with the leadership. Have the people plead with the leaders. There are times in our own government, flirts with, and to use common political term, gets in bed with an unhealthy partner. There are things that are happening in the world that are in direct contradiction to the ways of God. And here God is asking us, those of us that can actually still hear him, are you willing to stand up and try to persuade our leaders to consider the consequences. Which brings us into the next uncomfortable set of circumstances. It says, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the day she was born. 
I will make her like a desert. Turn her to a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. When those of us that have been or are close to those who have been mistreated or abused, and we begin to read through these words, we pause. And we pause because we actually hear the words of abusers who are capricious and unpredictable or given to mood swings. You know, like angry one minute and gentle the next. We read this. We may see those actions being justified by the Bible or even being descriptive of God himself. So many of us can struggle with the image of God in our minds. It's especially true with a God that reveals himself as a father or an authority figure. In my case, my dad's overly critical and demanding state the way he treated me, I just thought God was someone that was waiting for me to screw up so he could yell at me or zap me with lightning. For some of you, maybe your dad gave up on you or abandoned you. Maybe he's not around. Maybe he's not a part of your life. Maybe he didn't have your best interests at heart. It's really hard not to project our imperfect and flawed and sinful fathers over top of God. But we need to allow God to stand apart from this and be judged by who he really is. In this case, we need to remember the context. This affair is happening. The husband is reacting emotionally. He's angry. He's upset and he needs to act. What we can learn through study of this is that he's actually calling for divorce, as any husband would be. In a sense here, he's saying to the people, He's saying, Hosea is saying to Gomer, and God is saying to the people, look, I provide for you. I give you a home. I give you clothes. I give you food. If you're going to keep running off with other guys, I can't support that. And I can't support you in doing that. The words seem harsh, but the actions are understandable. I can't see any of us giving advice to someone that they should pay for the hotel room and their spouse is meeting up with someone else. As God's people walk further away from him, the less he will provide for their needs. It's not a surprise for them. He mentions this over and over and over and over through the pages of Scripture. God can't also be expected to bless the byproducts of those relationships, in this sense saying the children of these relationships. Nor can he be expected to bless the things that we do when we're not following him. Yeah, it was kind of a shady business deal I shouldn't have done, but God, can you bless what's happened since then? Trying to get ourselves out of the consequences from walking away with God. What he's really saying is his patience about the end. The prenuptial agreement is about to be enforced. We can't see this as a vindictive picture of God, but rather that he is so emotionally invested in this relationship that he has with Israel and that he has with us. He doesn't want a divorce. He wants to work it out. But as God's people, if we continue in our own ways, he will take action and we won't like it. (laughs) We might even respond, but it doesn't mean that we actually change. And as we keep going here, the wife says, I'll go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. 
But then a rant from God follows and says, she's not acknowledged that I'm the one that gave her the grain, the new wine, oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The metaphor of marriage may make us think about the complex relationships that we're used to. (laughs) There's issues in being married. And when we struggle, it's hard to put the blame all on one party. If one spouse is being unfaithful, the other spouse may be guilty of being distant or abusive or unresponsive. And it's often true. But there are times when there is one party, if they admit it or not, they just chose to act wrong. And here we get insight into the true dysfunction of the relationship. And it also, to me, enforces the special individualized case of Hosea and Gomer which doesn't apply to every messed up relationship that there is. The husband cuts off his provision, the wife returns. Not for love, not out of radical repentance, but just because she wants to refill the billfold. And it's easy to see through. Does this person actually want to be with me, or are they just using me? That's why we see such harsh language. It's it's as if God has said, look, I've tried to make it work. Like, I don't want to get this divorce. Like, I haven't cut you off, but like, you just, you don't stop. We have to break up. And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to read. And I think that we kind of get this picture, at least I get this picture of being in the room with a couple that starts arguing. If you've ever been into that situation, you know how uncomfortable that really is. But then in verse 14, we find an unexpected turn. So starting just a little bit before that, it says, But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I'll lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. I'll give her back her vineyards. And I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. And perhaps this can just reinforce our misunderstanding of God being fickle and moody. But let's place that on the shelf for a minute, okay? Hear what I have to say. I want you to just consider something before you land on what that judgment is. So I look back in the pages of my own journal. I mentioned that I started seeing glimpses of where God was at work. Where once I saw that God was trying to destroy me, I now saw that God was actually trying to prevent me from destroying myself. The relationships that I were involved in weren't necessarily bad. I mean, I only dated Christian girls, and they had similar standards to me. My job choices weren't evil. My career choices were fine. There was other good Christian people that were going into those things. But, but they, they were distracting me from my true purpose and my relationship with God. When I'd gone through all that crap in my life, God told me that he would always be with me and never forsake me. Then I got annoyed when he wouldn't leave me alone and was involved in everything that I was. He was, 
when I wasn't trying to work with him, he had to cut me off. Essentially, he had to break up with me because I wasn't willing to give up everything to follow him. Then he began to lure me back into a new relationship with him. Not one where I overlaid my dysfunctional relationship with my dad on him. Not one where I thought he was nitpicking me to death. But one where he showed me his plans. He showed me how unhealthy my relationships were, how my choices had become obsessions, how I was looking for benefits and stuff rather than acknowledging I could only find true fulfillment in him. He had to cut me off and destroy the person I was becoming so that I could become the person he had designed me to be. Also so that he could prepare me for the journey he wanted me to go on. So no longer was he my master. He was a friend, a close and intimate partner for life. Much like the relationship vows we make in weddings, right? A recommitment. As times of pain, I hope, have made me a better husband to April, a better father to my four kids, and a better mentor to the young people that come across my path. God ended the unhealthy relationship that I had with him. And one where I thought that I needed to do things or act a certain way because he expected it. And if he didn't, he would zap me with lightning. Instead, he started a new relationship with me where I did things and I acted in a certain way because I loved him. It looked very similar on the outside, but it was completely different on the inside. And it's a picture of seduction within this passage that really is amazing to me. Despite what Gomer has done, Hosea is still capable of love for her. Despite what Israel has done, God is still willing to allure her. And despite what I have done, God still wants to know that he can restore me. He can turn these dark memories and experiences into a gateway of hope. Help me sing again. It's not based on punishment. It's not based on control. Seduction may seem intense, but ultimately it's a choice. Will I be allured by him, or will I be allured by something else? He doesn't overpower me. He just starts pulling away all the things that are from him, and then I have to make a choice based on what I can actually see from the benefits of these relationships, what I can actually see of why he loves me versus do these other things actually love me. This old relationship, it ended in divorce, a new start, new vows, new commitments. And as you read through the rest of Hosea, you can see where God says, I betrothed myself to thee. I am making you these promises. I am wanting to restart. But I think it's all captured in that phrase when he says, you will call me my husband you will no longer call me my master. And the word for master there is Baal, which is the name of a false god that they, they worshipped in that part of the, the world at that time. Baal was the god of fertility, the god of the harvest, of sex, and all of the things that people wanted but felt like God wasn't a part of. Just much in the same way now, we talk about how awkward it is to talk about sex and God in the same sentence is that sometimes we feel like God isn't connected to that area of life when actually he was the one that designed it. 
He's like, you were calling me the wrong name. I don't want you to give credit to Baal. I, want, I don't want you to misunderstand who I am. I want you to really know me for who I am. It's time to leave Hosea, and we're going to look about how the Old Testament and the understanding we can get from there can help us to see the consistency of God throughout history. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to go to John 15. This is Jesus talking to his disciples on the night before he is crucified. John 15. I'm going to start in verse 4 and go down to verse 16. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you this, that your joy may, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, for everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. God's ways can seem so hard, and they can seem so restrictive. They can seem so archaic, and they can seem so unkind, but the reality is that it's quite simple. He, wants, he just wants to be a part of our life to understand where our life comes from and where it should go. Remain with me and love others. I don't know why we fight that so hard. He even gives us an example to share. The example of Hosea loving a wife who acted like a prostitute, who is willing to go through the depths of confrontation, of rehab, and ultimately into remarriage. If we don't follow and we don't want to follow God on that path, it's going to be a harsh and unforgiving road. One he's willing to travel on our behalf, giving us a whole new level of commitment of his to consider. His love compelled him to leave a palace, to live in the mud, to be mocked, to be taken advantage of and rejected even by his closest friends. He was stripped naked, just as Hosea was going to do to Gomer. Jesus was stripped naked, naked and paraded in front of the world, deprived of everything God had given, everything he had acquired on his own, and even his clothes were auctioned off. Divorce of that intimate connection with God. Now he could once and for all say the old relationship with God. The divorce was finalized, and now he wants things to be different. He wants us to know him deeper and more richly than ever. And I'm reminded of some of the most challenging words that I've ever read in Scripture, and I come to them time and time again when I'm tempted, when I feel like I'm being allured to walk away from God. And this reminds me of what God has done for me before I go off and do my own thing. Because we're standing on a precipice here. It's a fork in the road. It's got to throw out that old way and start over. So I'm going to give you a paraphrased version of Joshua 24:14. It says, Now fear the Lord, and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away all the crap that has gotten in the way between you and him and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, choose for this day 
who you're going to serve. Whether it's going to be the God of work, the God of football, the God of your hobby, whatever that may be, whatever your family was into, whatever stuff you see around us in the world where we're living. But as for me and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. The choice is simple, okay? First, it's a choice to remain. Not just go through the motions, but to allow them full access into your life. When meeting with young people, I often ask them to picture their life as a house. And if their life is this house, where is Jesus? Maybe you've locked him in the basement. Maybe he's the creepy neighbor across the street staring at you through the blinds. Maybe you'll let him in, but only into the kitchen, not into the attic. What room are you having Jesus avoid in your life? Why are you avoiding that room? It could be that there's nothing evil about that, that room, or that job. But God has nothing to do with it. And that needs to change in order for the relationship to work. Can you imagine living in a house with your spouse, but having a room they were not physically allowed to go into? The things that they would think that you were hiding from them in there? the things that you weren't allowing them to be a part of, the things that you weren't even allowing them to observe about you. These things may not be a full-blown affair, like the example here, but they could be things that you're just flirting with enough to pull you off track and away from God. And if we keep doing those things long enough, eventually God is going to call for some harsh action. How can you find this stuff out? Well, you can try journaling like me. You could join a life group. Get people, let people actually know you. Find a mentor. Find someone that you want to be like, someone that's further down the, the road. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. You need to take a snapshot of who you are and figure out the areas of your life where you're not letting God in. The choice to remain with Him. The second choice is to obey not just trying to sort out the rules, not just trying to make God happy, but trying to love Him better. To work on changing things, you need to actually change. Behind all of these things are two simple things, love God and love others. It's hard not to be selfish and pursue all the things that we want instead of what He knows is best for us. But if we want to have a true friendship with Him, to have Him treat us like friends, instead of just a controlling maniac in the sky, then we need to actually follow him. Or we'll find one day he's taken it all away. Taken all the way the things that we thought we deserved, all the things that we thought were ours, which were actually gifts of his. And he may break up with us in an attempt to help us see why we fell in love in the first place. I want to offer a prayer and we're going to have a quick time of response here for you to just settle in your heart. Are you remaining with him and are you choosing to follow him? 
There will be some people up here to pray with you if you want to do that with someone here, which I would encourage you to do. Sometimes we can get so focused in on our own life that we can't see something that's so blinding obvious to everyone else. And it's hard. But remember, God can use that junk and that crap in our life, the terrible things that we've gone through, the things that we've never told anybody about for, for glory, to help other people understand who he is. Let me just offer up a prayer. Father, I come before you, and I, and I realize that I don't have all the answers, and I realize that I make a lot of mistakes. I realize I don't always get everything straight. I may have misunderstood stuff here today, and I just ask you to just move me aside, my words aside, and that you would speak directly to the hearts of each person here, whether they've been walking with you for years or whether they've just been going through the motions. I thank you for the opportunity just to explore these things out together, to find out where your heart is, even in the midst of an understanding of you that's wrong. Forgive us for projecting our own hurts and failures onto you and the hurts and failures of our parents and our families and help us to get to know you for who you really are.